Hi, welcome to the Zoom and Zoom Out podcast. My name is Adhyan Chaudhary, and I'm joined with my co-hosts Parth Bihani and Akash Vikramshroff. The Zoom and Zoom Out podcast is about perspective, where we offer you a, a deeper look into the lives uh, and journeys of successful individuals, like one who we have here. Our extremely talented and really wonderful guest tonight is George Philip Laborde, who goes by GP. He studied his undergrad at Middlebury, went on to do his masters at Williams, and finally did a PhD at Stanford in the history of art and architecture. After that, GP uh, also managed an undergrad research program at the Digital Humanities Lab in Stanford, and is currently the head of partnerships at Polygens, which is an edtech startup aiming to help demo- uh, help spread and help high school students um, do research. GP, we're really thrilled to have you on board with us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, you guys. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. So um, as Pat mentioned, obviously, you've done a PhD and you're very accomplished, but we want to talk a little bit about your dissertation process because we know that that's something that's very interesting and could be very insightful. So first, in just simple terms for the benefit of us and for our audience, could you explain to us what your dissertation is about? Yes. My dissertation was called Tracing the Arctic Regions, and it was about the first photographic survey of the Arctic, specifically the western coast of Greenland, in 1869. So this was an extremely Um, early um, expedition to that area. As you might um, be well aware, it was always an area that particularly German and English explorers were very fascinated by and were trying to find the Northwest Passage. But what was really interesting about this particular voyage that I found was that it was financed by a venture capitalist and it was conducted Mm -hmm. only for the purposes of art. So even though they were scientists aboard, it was really directed by an artist and he wanted to effectively create this visual database of what the Arctic looked like, not only for the purpose of um, creating his own pictures to use it as sort of reference points, but also to become a sort of Arctic expert in his own right. And he became a member of the US Geographical Society and presented um, in London at various illustrious locales and was actually one of the favored um, painters of uh, Queen Victoria as well. Just a really interesting individual named William Bradford who had huge mutton chops and uh, was a lineal descendant (laughs) of uh, William Bradford who founded the Plymouth Colony, one of the earliest settlements in in America. So... um, Lots of really interesting things overlapping, but essentially was really about my passion for both art and visual representation and with an emphasis on understanding more about our climate history and how glaciers have changed receding since that time. Well, that sounds fascinating. And um, so when we discussed this dissertation with you, you spoke to us about how your approach to the dissertation sort of conflicted with that of your professor. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how you approached that tussle? Yeah, I think this is one of the, writing a dissertation is hard for a number of reasons, but it also is an opportunity to sort of carve out your space and find your own way. That might not always be the most popular or the most accepted way. And my advisor, who um, was an absolutely brilliant person and who is an amazing teacher and who I admire for a number of reasons, 
um, is still a very traditional person. And so he doesn't really think that the use of computational techniques or the digital humanities is a worthwhile way of exploring humanistic subjects. So that was always a real tension when I was trying to do original research in this new field using exciting methods that are certainly of a piece with contemporary research. Um, and also the subject matter was one that was very uh, distributed. It wasn't sort of focused on a particular place or a particular artist within the US. It was really about a place that's beyond nas national boundaries, a place of imagination, um, but also a place where indigenous people lived and trying to find a way of representing them in, in an honorable way, um, especially for people in that, for white explorers in that period was a real challenge that had a lot of complicated issues to explore. So, um, yeah, your uh, your question, Akash, is, is appreciated. It's really, you know, that tension is one that you sort of have to manage, pushing back just as far as you think is appropriate to sort of stake your own claims. But then also the dissertation is so much for your committee, satisfying those people who are sort of your intellectual guides. So you also have to sort of bow to them at, at certain points. So it's a very interesting process going back and forth. Wow. Yeah, that, that sounds like it could be a bit of a challenge, making sure you're doing what you want while also staying within the limits of how far you can push ahead. Uh, were there any moments where, because you were doing it in your own way, um, where if at any point something didn't go according to the way you'd planned it to go, and at that point you started questioning yourself or wondering if not going by this computational method may have been the right decision? That's a great question, Parth. I can tell you when you're um, in a PhD program, you sort of, within your field, you start to identify people who are um, up and comers or who might be leaders in the field going forward. And the way that that happens is not just on the quality of their writing or their presentations. It's also about the awards they get and the fellowships that they get. Mm -hmm. So when it came mm -hmm. sort of time for me to apply for the most prestigious fellowships, I was nominated for them. I applied, I was a finalist, but I didn't get them. Um, mm -hmm. That's not to say that I didn't get any. I got a great Mellon dissertation fellowship at the Stanford Humanities Center. So that is certainly something that I want to be proud of. It's, it's not a, a failure mm -hmm. in abject terms, but um, it still didn't bring me to some of the premier research facilities in the US, like uh, the National Gallery. Uh, in Washington, D.C. Okay. is uh, the Smithsonian is really a place where people go. And if they make it into that funnel, then they've got a great resume line and they'll be hired as a professor almost assuredly somewhere. So when I didn't get mm -hmm. that fellowship, I sort of started to think, oh, no, am I maybe I don't have what it takes. Maybe, you know, maybe I didn't work hard enough. Maybe my topic is just not that important. And um, that was a real moment of self-doubt, I have to say, and introspection. So that was really difficult for me to sort of process and work through because I felt like I was still um, performing what I wanted to do well. Perhaps I, you know, I one can always work harder and do yeah. better. And so that was sort of a motivation. Um, but at the same time, I, um, I also saw other opportunities at that point. And one of the really amazing experiences that I had was getting a grant to go to the Arctic Circle in a tall ship oh, wow. with <laughs> sails where all of us um, pasty academics and scientists and writers <laughs> were 
getting calluses on our hands by hoisting the sails and uh, staying up uh, <laughs> through the 24 hours of daylight in the Arctic summer. And um, so that was just a sort of a, really a signature experience of my life as an academic and my life broadly. It was certainly unlike any other place I visited. It was very emotional, very inspiring. Um, and I, I don't think I would have had that opportunity if I hadn't had uh, not achieved the sort of standard route that mm -hmm. I thought I should be taking. Right. So um, mm -hmm. that was, you know, those, those years, that sort of experience was a really interesting inflection point for me. Yeah, uh, I think uh, it's so heartening to know that somebody who's as successful as you can also go through self-doubt sometimes, especially when it comes to like a dissertation or something as important as that. Uh, uh, and you also mentioned about your Arctic Circle experience. Um, and from your website, I know that you're an environmentalist. And personally, I'm really interested in studying climate change. Uh, what was something in regards to the climate that you found uh, while doing your Arctic research? You know, Ari, one of the most interesting things, and I think one of the great ways that we can sort of gain perspective on the debates, certainly, um, you know, without casting aspersions on people with different belief systems, I think certainly any thinking person who believes that science is real can recognize that climate is changing as a result of um, mm -hmm. human phenomena in producing fossil fuel emissions, and that we can register this uh, really within our own lives, the way the climate, you know, I grew up in on the coast of Maine and the northeast of the United States. We have fewer uh, winter snowstorms now than we did when I was growing up. There are many farmers across the world who are recognizing significant changes in the way that the climate's affecting their livelihood. Um, and interestingly, too, even on the, you know, perhaps most... Uh, Jarringly, um, in places like the Maldives, you know, the rise of sea level, which is really just beginning to affect uh, people in the first world, um, you know, has significant consequences on literally the footprint of their lives. And, um, you know, there's, there's the potential for uh, a whole generation of climate refugees ahead of us that will cause some really difficult philosophical and ethical conversations. One of the really fascinating things that I found in this regard is at the end of um, the 19th century, the end of the 1800s, we were really seeing the end of what scientists have called a little ice age. And this was a relative period of accelerated cooling where glaciers were actually growing. Um, you know, uh, after completing my master's, I actually got a Fulbright grant uh, in Switzerland to sort of research what the history of um, uh, let's say human interaction with the environment looked like there in this very mountainous glaciated region. And there were uh, priests who were called upon to exercise the demons from glaciers because beginning in the 14th century into the 19th, the glaciers were actually advancing, growing, and like swallowing up little uh -huh. French towns that were right next to mountain valleys. And likewise in the 18th century, in the 19th century uh, in the Arctic, the glaciers were actually advancing. And there's a very narrow strip of land where the native um, Inuit peoples of Western Greenland called the Kadatlit actually lived between the glaciers and the sea. And with the glaciers advancing, it really seemed like many of those settlements would actually just be wiped out. So um, 
that's both an opportunity to to have us sort of say, wow, climate actually changed very changes very tangibly within human life cycles. So it's not something that's moving super slowly. Things can happen mm -hmm. quite fast. Um, mm -hmm. But the other interesting thing, and this is sort of viewed from a colonial, post-colonial perspective, is that white explorers actually used the advance of the glaciers as um, further justification for the idea that these were primitive peoples whose race could not survive in the modern world. And so they would be sort of wiped off the face of the planet. So a very convenient and uh, you know, ugly narrative that sort of started yeah. to take shape around these different climate changes. So um, that's just an example. And, and of course, now it's just the opposite. We see like there are, as the glaciers recede and, uh, you know, uh, unpredictable changes happen to climate and weather. Um, of course, there are other people who are suffering and who might be displaced. So um, I sort of take that as a really great parable for us living in contemporary society to say, you know, these things that we think of as moving very slowly actually happen quite fast. But also that the way that the human mind works is that we're always trying to project explanations through these natural phenomena onto our vision of the world and using it to justify things. So um, it can happen in any direction. And so just to be very conscious of the way that we read external phenomena and scientific factor discoveries um, as basically ways of reinforcing maybe worldviews that we already have. So it's really difficult to sort of check yourself um, and to reduce that bias, but it's something that we should be aware of in order to do so. I think that's wonderfully insightful. And um, going back a little bit, I really like this image that you presented of researchers such as yourself trying to work on the ship with calloused <laughs> hands. And that's an experience I think that must have really pushed you out of your comfort zone. So um, amidst all of this sort of self-doubt that creeps up in, in any field, I think, and especially in very academic fields, and this experience where you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, I'm sure it could get slightly overwhelming at times. So how do you get yourself to carry on amidst all of this? Do you have any systems that mm. you rely on or anything that you use? Uh, Akash, that's such a great question. I have to say that, um, First of all, let me begin by saying how much I admire the three of you for putting this together and for you know the, the <laughs> successful completion of high school and your journey into college. I can say that for my part, I was much less aware of the world. Um, I was a very, very curious person. I think that's what got me through high school, but um, was just able in a sense to sort of uh, inhabit the, the outdoors and inhabit my studies um, without, uh, without all of the distractions that we all sort of suffer from today. And that was a really good grounding experience when I was in high school. Um, and going through um, my dissertation, I felt like that was a really hard experience to maintain um, because there are all of these, not only you know, external media that are sort of exerting forces on you and making you more critical of yourself, um, but also just in terms of sheer distractions and, uh, you know, the amount of, um, the amount of people offering different perspectives that can sort of cloud the direction that you want to go in. So, um, the, one of the big, uh, improvements that I've made to my own working style was to try to set up much more, um, rigorous, uh, scheduling practices to say, these mm -hmm. are my hours of work. Even though I'm writing a dissertation mm -hmm. in a library or at home, I'm really treating this like work. I'm not going to 
uh, take a walk or I'm not going to, um, I don't know, check the news, those sorts of things, to really try to close those browsers, to put sort of, um, you know, uh, restrictions on what you can access when and focus on what you're doing. Um, so that was really helpful. Um, but a little bit, speaking a little bit more psychologically or emotionally, um, I really wanted to try to find ways of centering myself and getting over self-doubt. So I, I did um, uh, expand my medication, my, my uh, meditation practice at that point, a, a kind of medication of the, the mind, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing that I did was um, I started doing um, daily free writing in the morning of a very short length, 750 words, usually, you know, sometimes ranging up to 1250 or something like that, but really just two or three pages of free writing. Sometimes I was transcribing dreams that I had had that were very interesting. Um, sometimes I was um, just sort of writing about my hopes and dreams or things that I was feeling, um, uh, you know, unsettled by. And one of the things that made it into that sort of daily writing habit was um, uh, a book called The Five Agreements, which is um, by Don Miguel Ruiz. And um, it's a really, basically they're very simple sort of affirmations that help you to, to push out the noise, to just sort of like block external criticism and to say, these are, these are some truths that I can always fall back to and rely on. And it really helped me shift my perspective. I'll share them with you briefly. I, I, you know, even just writing them out on a daily basis was sort of helpful to me to remind me. So uh, I say, uh, you would say, I am impeccable with my word, which means that you speak with integrity and you say only what you mean. You use your words, your speech in the power of good and of love rather than in cynicism or in hate. Um, I don't take anything personally because everything that other people do is not because of me. That's a projection of their own reality. Yeah. Um, I don't make assumptions. So much of the pain and anxiety that you feel um, in life is because you think, oh no, is that person not texting me back because I texted something weird yeah, or did I say the wrong thing there or <laughs> did I not get into this place because I wasn't good enough? There's so many external factors that you have no oversight over and no control over. So the simplest thing you can do is to not make assumptions about what other people think or why something happened. Um, and one of the ways to sort of um, get over that is by uh, also uh, committing to always doing your best. Um, that doesn't mean that you always do the same thing every time. Some days you are feeling low or some days you haven't slept well. And just finding, reaching deep and finding ways of doing your best in that particular moment really helped me to say, this is the best I can do today, but I know that that is actually the best I can do today. Um, and the last one is that uh, I live in the now. So I am not uh, thinking about, you know, what if I don't become a full professor by this uh, age, or I'm not thinking about that thing that I did last week that was super embarrassing and stupid. I'm just trying to like live in the moment here because this is what I have to do. I am with you guys on zoom in, zoom out. And it's beautiful. <laughs> wow. I, I think those sound really incredible and could be so peaceful as well, especially the idea of 
um, not beating yourself up if on a certain day you're feeling low and just accepting the fact that you're doing the best that you can. And also the idea you were talking about where um, just doing what you can and not making assumptions about other people. Um, yeah, I, th I think that that could be so powerful, but it's definitely a hard thing to do in my experience that even if you're conscious about it, it takes practice to build that up. Um, yes. And I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about what you're talking about meditation and transcribing your dreams and taking out time for yourself. Um, how has that helped you develop these goals or has that helped you um, develop these ideals? Yeah, um, I would say that it, it, it's helped me part to the degree that I'm able to sort of focus on the things that are meaningful to me and less on the things that I think are meaningful to other people. That's been very mm -hmm. freeing. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, one of the reasons that I had to work through that personally is that I started my PhD program because I wanted to be, um, you know, I thought I wanted to be a professor at a liberal arts school like Middlebury or Williams, the kinds that I went to. Mm -hmm. I really love those learning environments um, mm. and think a lot of great faculty and student connections happen there. But life doesn't go according to plan. I happen to meet a wonderful <laughs> woman and I have two little girls now. And we have a house in San Francisco. Her family's in the area. She loves her job at YouTube. And we don't want to move. And so instead of saying, I'm just going to apply broadly to uh, teaching positions all over the, the country, I had to make a, um, you know, that sort of tactical decision to say, this is the right place to stay for me and my family right now. And so I'm not going to apply to professor positions and I need to be, uh, I need to be okay with that. And it took a while to sort of work through that um, based on the expectations I had set up for myself, but um, it's led to a form of um, peace and confidence and contentment that I actually hadn't felt during the anxiety of the PhD process um, while I was applying to, to teaching positions. So it's been a really nice change. And I think that a lot of that um, internal self-reflection I was describing helped me to get there. Yeah, uh, I mentioned that, uh, sorry, I remember that you mentioned to us uh, that when you were writing your dissertation, you had one of your daughters. Um, and you also mentioned sacrifice right now. How's this role of sacrifice, like, played for you? Um, are you, are you, uh, do you regret doing something? Are you thankful that something's happened? Um, what was the trade-off between work and life for you? Yeah, uh, such a great question, Ari. Um... Well, one of the things that I really also try to embrace is the, is the idea of living without regret, not saying, what if I had mm -hmm. done this or what if I had done that? Most mm -hmm. assuredly, my life would be different if I had done different things. But, um, you know, the life that I'm in right now is one that's deeply satisfying. Um, to speak um, directly about the sort of sacrifices you make for family, um, I think what's really wonderful about having children and something that... Um, you know, my wife and I were just watching an episode of uh, Master of None. Um, and uh, there was this episode where, um, you know, the the two sons, both of, um, of Asian descent, so one Indian and one Korean, um, were like, we really actually don't know what our parents went through, the sacrifices they made to get us here to the U.S. so that we could have this great life. And... Um, uh, 
I think that that's a really hard thing, especially when we're in high school or even in college to sort of remind yourself, like your parents pour so much of their hopes and dreams into you. They want to give the best to you. And feeling that with my young daughters right now has just been, mm -hmm. you know, it sort of makes your heart grow in ways that you never thought possible, basically. And what's great about that is that it allows you, I think, to... Um, it really allows you to, without reservation and without regret, put other people's um, well-being ahead of your own. And that's feeling like you're living for someone else, not just for yourself, is a really, it seems like it would be sort of a way of tying you down and making you dependent. But it actually feels like it's just given me so much strength and confidence and mm -hmm. meaning. Um, so uh, I'm not saying that you have to have children in order to attain that, but that, that was an experience that I had that was really meaningful. And, and um, yeah, it makes, in a sense, sorry, it makes sacrifice not feel like sacrifice. It makes it feel like more like positive decisions that you're making. I, I think that's wonderful to hear because sometimes sacrifice gets a sort of negative connotation where you assume that you're giving up something that you wanted to do. But in this scenario, mm -hmm. it seems more like you were getting something that was much greater in return mm -hmm. in your eyes. And Yeah, um, that's a nice way I, of saying it. So uh, I just want to uh, take us back to your college days because the three of us are now going to be heading to college and I'm sure mm -hmm. a lot of our listeners here are around that same age. So um, your college life could be described as quite hectic, if, if we might <laughs> use that word. Could you just tell us a little bit about all the different activities and the different majors that you did in college? Yes. Uh... You know, I think, as I was mentioning, that's sort of the way that my mind works. I'm really curious. I love meeting new people. I love making new connections sort of intellectually between subjects. And for that reason, Akash, I just wanted to sort of do everything. You know, I, I was involved in sort of um, doing outdoor orientations, going through hikes through Vermont with new students. I um, participated in acapella groups. I rode on the crew team. I ended up having three majors. And what I can tell you is it's a really great opportunity to sort of reach beyond your comfort zone and do new things and meet new people. Um, but if I am any example, there's also uh, the danger of doing too much. I think that basically, um, uh, you know, looking back, I don't regret any of the decisions that I made because I made so many great connections and had so many great experiences. But the trade-off there is that I definitely did not perform as well in some classes as I might have. And I definitely, you know, maybe could have spent more time uh, training for my crew team than for uh, uh, if I had not been in an acapella group, that sort of thing. So um, that's just, um, you know, that's a cost benefit analysis that I think you'll need to make when you get to school is reach out widely, make new connections. But then also know that, be, just be very conscious of the fact that you only have so much time. And by giving this your attention and time, that means you have to take it away from somewhere else. So uh, that's, uh, I know there, yeah. those are not uh, particularly uh, incriminating details that I gave you, Akash, but that's still a good overall <laughs> lesson that, that I yeah. can offer. Yeah. Um, I'm actually super interested to know about uh, how you manage time. You, you did three majors. You were on the acapella group. Uh, you were on the rowing team. 
Um, I haven't done this much, and I've had more issues with time management than I <laughs> you've ever had. Uh, would Would there any systems of time management that you'd recommend to us? Um, no, all of those came. As I was telling you, like they really came late in the game for me. Um, this is very curious. A lot of athletes will tell you that their best uh, their best seasons are the ones. Uh, or rather their best uh, uh, semesters in school are the ones where they're in season. So even though it seems like you'd be devoting more time to um, training and less time to school, what, what those sorts of obligations do is sort of artificially creates a structure for you that you have to abide. You know, your buddies on the team are going to, you know, if you sleep in, I slept in a few times, everyone sleeps in a few times. Um, if you sleep in, your buddies are dragging you out of bed to get to the lake, to get in the boat, you know? And if you're late for something, someone's going to give you a call, like get over here to rehearsal or something like that. And that just means that the time that you do have, you sort of feel, um, I felt sort of compelled to act very, um, uh, you know, to act very committedly within. I said, this is the only time I have for homework. So I got to do it now. And that just sort of leads to an efficiency um, that sometimes is harder to manage when you have a lot of free time and you're like, oh, maybe I could just play a video game right now for a little bit. Or, you know, maybe I could just uh, go for a run right now instead of doing this other thing. But when your whole day is scheduled like that, then it sort of removes the opportunity for distraction. Um, and that was probably a saving grace uh, for me. Because it wasn't until really my dissertation that I got much more committed. During my master's, I was also like clock in, clock out, show up early at the library, head home late. Um, but um, it really wasn't until I got to uh, writing my dissertation when you don't have any other obligations, you're just supposed to be writing, that I had to set up those structures to say, here's my working period. I even did something called the Pomodoro technique, which is a little timer yeah. where you do... 25 minutes on, five minutes off. Um, I found that to be pretty effective too. Um, you sort of have to experiment for what works for you. But yeah, um, yeah sort of relinquishing your decision-making to another power, basically outsourcing that responsibility, uh, whether yeah. it's to a, a Pomodoro timer or whether it's to your crew team, that can be, that can be very helpful. Yeah. I had one more question about our college days. So uh, I think most of us going into college have seen that really disgusting triangle uh, with good grades, a good social life, and enough sleep. Um, mm. And you need to pick two out of the three. Um, <laughs> how, how much? How much do you think this is true for you? And um, is this, is, is, does this make sense at all? You know, <clears throat> that's that's that golden triangle. Um, it, you know, I'm thinking in sort of project management terms too, like that, that something's got to give, you know, like whether it's scope or budget or time, sleep or social life or grades have got to give at some point if you need to, if you need to move around. Um, what I will say, this is probably not a popular opinion. I know that the sort of aphorism that you like to hear trotted around is you can sleep when you're dead. Um, I believe in the power of good sleep, man. I say help yourself out. Your grades will be better if you sleep well. It's really hard to say, to have, 
To have good sleep hygiene is something I never did in college, but it's been since I've become a parent, I've been much better at it. Um, you know, even even now I struggle with it. Don't stay up too late reading stuff on your phone or watching videos. You know, give yourself a little give yourself a little slack. Try to try to go to bed at the same time every day. Try to get up at the same time every day. That sort of rhythm, while really difficult, especially when you get to college. Um, and, and rightfully so, you should make exception, exceptions for this because it's so fun to meet new people and to stay out late and to sort of do things on your own terms. But um, do yourself a favor and try to find a rhythm. It, it could be pretty reasonable. You know, it could be go to sleep at 11, wake up at eight. You know, that's, that's great. But try to, try to let yourself have good sleep because not only will your grades be better, but you'll probably be... Um, I always like to say it's it's better to leave the party early than to be the last one there, you know? Definitely. And I think both and Orient uh, will attest to this, but they get quite annoyed with me when I can't um, come to our meeting calls for the podcast because I'm like, guys, this I need to go to sleep now. I have to wake up tomorrow, so I need to be it in sounds, bed right now. It, you're, maybe you're just an old soul like me, Akash. Maybe we're really the lame ones, and Ari and Parth are the cool kids that, that will always be more popular oh, no. than us. But um, yeah, I, be, I believe in the power of good sleep, man. Yeah. I think I think I second that. I think um, it's only very recently that I realized that sleep is a superpower. Like when you're well rested, there is something that takes you more time to do, but you can do it really faster because you slept well. So I really mm -hmm. wanted to add that. Um, also, uh, I think uh, you mentioned about scheduling your day and and really really following a schedule. Has it? Have you ever experienced your schedule getting to the better of you? Sometimes, like you feel, oh, I'm getting too robotic now. Um, I just need some time to do nothing or like just just go mm. back to how I was high school or something doing nothing that's amazing <laughs> um <clears throat> uh something i do believe in actually and there there's scientific research around this is the power of boredom is actually pretty significant you mm -hmm. do a lot of good daydreaming when you're bored when your mind just has the the ability to wander being bored does not mean scrolling through your instagram feed being bored means <laughs> you do not have your phone in front of you and you're literally looking out the window at nothing um uh, I, I think letting yourself be bored, uh, you know, periodically is actually really good. Um, something that we often don't let ourselves do is sort of, uh, contemplate, uh, existential things these days, you know, like is, you know, like why, what is my purpose here actually? Like, am I doing something that's meaningful? Those are really hard thoughts to uh, crack open if you're reading the New York Times or, uh, you know, like watching TikTok videos. So um, I would say, yeah, that's definitely valuable. Ari, the, the biggest challenge for me now is that you have so many things on your plate when you get to when you're in a job that it's really hard to, to, to like cut yourself off and say, especially right now, I'm working at a startup, you know, we're trying to move fast, we're at this exciting growth stage. Um, uh, being willing to say, like, I got to take a break to do some yoga or to go for a bike ride, I got to, um, you know, I, I've got to like log off, even though there are more things on my to do list, those are those are challenges and tensions that um, 
are, are difficult to manage. Um, I will say again, having a family for me was really helpful in that regard because I'm the cook in the house. And so 4.35 PM rolls around, like I got to start cooking because these little girls go crazy if, uh, if we don't have dinner by 5.30 or six, you know? So, um, uh, that's just sort of like a natural, you know, social timer, I guess, that's sort of built into my day that's been really good. But it's definitely a challenge. I think we all go through waves of saying, like, I've done a good job with self-care this month, but this month is really busy. And so I've got to, like, you know, ratchet that back or whatever. But I tend to find that the the moments where you're under the most stress are and have the most to do, those are exactly the moments when you need to take a long bath or to meditate or to just connect with friends. Uh, you really need that recharging in order to perform well. Yeah. I fully agree because I think nowadays, especially in our generation, there's very little time that you get entirely to yourself mm. without someone else's thoughts protruding your personal space. So be it, if you're listening to music, that's still someone else in mm-hmm. your head. Right. If you're listening to a podcast, Guys, that still means you have to listen to our podcast. This isn't <laughs> an excuse for you to not listen to our podcast, but after the podcast. Um, and I definitely think that um, when you're most stressed, you need to take a break. And counterintuitively, taking that break is very, very helpful because if you're stuck with a problem, at least I found that only when I stopped trying to actively solve the problem, when I let the back of my brain do its job, that's when I reach a solution. Mm, that's great. And um, so just in the same vein, uh, do you get any sort of productivity slumps now and how do you get yourself out mm. of it? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Um One of the things that was most helpful for me in terms of writing, um, I actually, you know, getting, getting up early is hard, but if you get up early and don't check your phone, then you just, your mind is like this beautiful, uh, pool of calm in the morning. And so if you can do something like if you need to do, I doing the free writing, then I was talking to you about sort of transcribing dreams. My mind is just so uh, like I say, it just feels like it's floating in those early moments in the morning. I'm talking early guys. I'm talking like 4:35 in the morning. If you can get up that early, (laughs) your mind is just like, you know, it it literally has not kicked into gear yet. (laughs) And it's at that point that you can access like really amazing thoughts and feelings. Like I actually think that whether it be writing, a statistics problem set, or whether it be writing an original uh, novel. Lots of writers through the history of, uh, of creativity have found that um, strange sleep schedules uh, can help them access that sort of plasticity of mind that can make them super productive. So counterintuitively, if you're going through slumps, you know, like sometimes just say, screw it, I'm going to get up super early and just like write free write or something like that. Or if I have a paper due, not that day, of course, but like the week before and like you're having trouble getting started, just get up early and let the words flow. Whatever comes out, comes out. Um, There's lots of great lessons there. I've actually written an article about um, 
the nature of creativity and sort of metaphors that we use to access it. One of them being, um, you can see how this connects to my dissertation work. One of them being an iceberg, you know, it's like, okay. <laughs> like there's only a, a small percentage of the iceberg that's above the water. And then there's mm -hmm. the rest that's this yeah. is sort of a metaphor that's come to us through psychoanalysis. Um, and you just need to be able to access what's underneath. Um, so that's like literally, you know, the, the unconscious mind that's, that's waiting to be tapped down there. Um, and those are, I like to think that those are great ways of doing it. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. We should definitely link the article you were talking about, uh, in the description below for anyone to check it out. Um, and yeah, the idea of having this time where your brain can just think for me, I found like over the last few months is that's like late night for me when there's no one else around, when it's just this calm period where I can mm. either think about whatever it might be, be it existential thoughts, be it, yeah, um, you got to find, getting ideas, you gotta find what works for you, you know? Yeah. 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 So I think, yeah, it, for most people, I've heard it's either really early in the morning or really late at night. So one of those time periods that really does become quite, quite yes, interesting. Right. <laughs> Do some experimentation, yes. Yeah. So when you have these productivity slumps, or even in general, when you want to take a break, um, are there any particular guilty pleasures that you like enjoying or just like indulging in? Sorry, could you say that again? Uh, yeah, I was saying it, at any moment when you want to take a break or just have a moment to yourself, are there any particular guilty pleasures that you like to indulge in? Ah, uh, yes. Um, yeah. So um, one of my wife's teams at YouTube is VR. And mm -hmm. so, so we have the Oculus Quest 2. I just love getting onto Beat Saber and losing myself for 15 or 20 minutes. Sometimes I'll do that in the middle of the day if I'm feeling sort of a lag. I'll just be like, I gotta get the, I gotta get the blood moving again. So I'll just go up and like crank out a few songs and get a little sweaty, but then come back and sit down. Um, one of my colleagues at Stanford who was a, um, uh, her degree was sort of in, um, her field is in biology, but she's basically like an intellectual physiologist and sports physiologist. She's like, one of her points of research was getting the blood moving is literally, uh, you know, just like your parents might have told you, you know, it's, it's the thing that actually gets your mind working again. It literally brings blood to your brain and helps synapses start to fire. So uh, that's one of the reasons it is a guilty pleasure because it's a, you know, it's a game, but <laughs> it's still something that I really enjoy um, sort of hopping into briefly um, uh, with, with regularity, I would say like once every couple of days, I'll, I'll do that and feel better for it. Um, another thing I really like, this is on the total opposite end of the spectrum. Um, I like me some sports highlights, man. I, um, the NBA basketball is in the finals or sorry, the playoffs right now. And the, one of the things that I really like about it, I think this is the reason people like, uh, I think it's the reason they like reality TV too, is that it's the one thing in our lives that feels unscripted, you know, that we don't, you know, it's not like a game of Thrones episode where you see what the character arc is. Um, literally nobody knows what's going to happen. In this basketball yeah. game, you can't even lost that. Yeah, you can't even uh, lost in the game. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, even watching like the summary 10 minute highlights, um, my brain is off. I'm literally a hundred percent absorbed in this thing. And I'm not worrying about my job. I'm not worrying about my past or my future. I am just like, oh man, that's a crazy shot that the guy <laughs> just hit. Is you know, like, what is going to happen now? You know. Um, so that's another guilty pleasure. My wife thinks that it's literally the uh, most unattractive thing that I can do is like be a sports bro in front of the TV. But I think it's still for I th I think it still helps me uh, maintain sanity in a really good way. So I'm I'm sticking to it. Yeah, it was so nice talking to you. Uh, before before we end this call, uh, before we end this episode, sorry. Uh, do you have any parting message or a question for our audience? A question? That's a great idea. Tell me what uh, other questions people have asked. So we've, in general, we've had questions <laughs> ranging like, how do you define your happiness? Um, what what mm. would you consider successful? Is it some arbitrary goal? Is it trying to achieve some certain level of competence? Is it trying to complete a task, mm. like say two hours of a certain task every day? Just anything. You can go all out mm. with this question. Yeah. It can be something small, yeah. something about climate, I love anything it. of that sort. Just just something for our audience um, to think about. <clears throat> be it at so, what I, so what is, Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so what I'll say is that I know that um, I know that uh, people in your shoes, uh, especially through this last year and a half, um, have had so much pressure and stress, uh, having to uh, you know feel isolated from friends and from school and even from family in some situations, while still sort of trying to. Uh, fulfill the expectations that you have. The high school is a short four years. College mm -hmm. is a short four years. And it feels like there's so much riding on these moments. And I know that there's a lot of anxiety and pressure that comes on you. One of the things that I think a lot about in my job is ways of helping people. So there's research, which is important. It sort of drives the human ex experience forward in either practical and technical ways or more existential philosophical ways. Um, but research also allows people to sort of tap into a higher purpose. And if there's one thing that I've learned from my own sort of research into mental health this past year is that especially for people who are in high school or in college, um, finding ways of defining success, Akash, to sort of take that thread that are not based on pure grades or not based mm -hmm. on what school you get into they're not based on um, how much money you make in your job. If you can find a way of, ta of finding a higher purpose and helping your life find meaning, you will be a happier person and you will have better direction. So let that be um, a journey that you explore, whether you're still in high school or whether you're in college or past college, you know, um, f finding some way to tap into a sense of meaning uh, is is so important and it will make you feel better almost immediately. So um, that's that's something that's a journey that I'm still on too. And but it's it's also one that I really want to encourage other people to explore and to empower them to do so. That's wonderful mm -hmm. to hear, and I think that's a really great message to leave 
And that's something we can all aspire to, to try to find that something that motivates us that isn't necessarily monetary, isn't dependent on what rank your university is. It's something more intangible. But this was such a wonderful conversation, GP. Thank you so much. To all of our listeners, we shall have um, information about GP as well as all of the insightful resources he mentioned, including his article linked in the description below. So please do check that out. I think there's a lot uh, of really worthwhile stuff there, especially the affirmations that GP mentioned. Um, thank you all for listening. We hope to see you again next time. Bye.